Acts chapter 10, and uh, you'll notice we're going to cover a tremendous amount of ground in Acts chapter 10, but our reading this morning is verses 17 through 23, and so I'd like for you all to stand with me, if you can, and read the text, or at least this portion of the text, together with me. Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 17, and let's read down through verse 23 as our reading this morning. As we do every Sunday, let's read together and let's read aloud. Verse 17. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them, On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Shall we pray? Father, we are blessed and thankful to have the opportunity to read your word this morning. And now as we come to study your word, may you anoint and bless us with your Holy Spirit. Help us, Father, to focus upon the richness of the meaning of this passage along with all the rest of this chapter. And Lord, may it speak to our hearts of our responsibility to share and to declare the good news of Jesus Christ, that He came to save sinners. And it is, Lord God, a joy for us because, Lord, someone shared the gospel with us that we might be here today and know the blessing of the love of Christ and to have the assurance of eternal life. And so, Lord, we, we pray for you to help us in, in that calling which you've given to each and every one of us that knows you and loves you. May you strengthen our understanding of this today in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. You all may be seated. Verse 17 says that Peter wondered within himself. He wondered within himself. Have you ever been perplexed about a situation in your life that seems so confusing and out of your control that you couldn't really grasp any viable means to resolve the problem facing you. Have you ever been that perplexed in life? 
Well, that probably brings up a question for some of you. What does it mean to be perplexed? (laughs) Well, some simple definitions would be puzzled, at a loss, confused, mystified, confounded, baffled and bewildered. Quite a few words that uh, are synonyms of the word perplexed. But you can take any one of those words and substitute it for Peter's wondering within himself what this vision which he had seen meant. That vision of this great sheet that came out of heaven with all sorts of animals, clean and unclean, kosher and unkosher. And God saying to him and speaking to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Well, the King James Version of the Bible gets to the very heart of the meaning of Peter's wondering and perplexity because it says there, Peter doubted within himself. And that's really the true sense and understanding of this perplexity, of this bewilderment and this baffling and this puzzlement. Peter doubted within himself. What a human response to things that we don't understand. In our last study, we spoke of Peter's dilemma, which I had mentioned was actually more than just one dilemma. You know that he didn't worry about staying in the home of a tanner who dealt with the carcasses of dead animals, which made him unclean. And yet, without hesitation, he tells Jesus outright, No, not so, Lord, when the Lord tells him to rise and to kill and to eat any of these animals. And then the Lord has to declare to him, whatever he has cleansed, Peter, wasn't to call common. That's perplexing. Especially when you grew up with, in that culture and in that tradition, that there were clean things and unclean things. And now God is saying, what I make clean, you do not call common or unclean. How many times in seeking to do the Lord's work have we found ourselves in that very same place, perplexed and and doubting within ourselves? Listen, it happens a lot. And we need to be honest about that. Peter was honest about it. Even after seeing this particular vision, even after hearing what the Lord has to say to him, and then realizing that Peter sees this vision three times, God has to show it to him three times, yet he still doubts. But if we just wait, if we, if we all just wait for a bit, if we wait on the Lord, as, as the Scriptures so oftentimes tell us, wait upon the Lord, the Lord will usually bring either the answer or the means by which you'll understand why He has you where you are. And so it was with Peter. Because while he's puzzling over this vision, the men that Cornelius had sent arrived in Joppa. And by the way, just to bring you to, to a remembrance here and a review, uh, in the first 16 verses of, of chapter 10, there are two stories going on. In one place, Peter's having this vision in, in Joppa, while a few miles north up in Caesarea... A man named Cornelius, a centurion, a Roman soldier, 
a Roman leader of men. One who has, has embraced the, the, the religion of the Jews. One who was a good man, an honest man, a pious man. Is also receiving a vision. Two separate places, two different things happening, but all working toward one goal. It's a great illustration of all things working together for good here. Peter was pondering the purpose of a vision that he had received three times while at the door stood three strangers who had just taken a three-day journey to inquire about him. You know, it's interesting that in the life of Peter, he, he seemed to always have these, these, these incidences or these events that happen in threes. Three times Peter denied his Lord. Three times after Jesus had resurrected from the dead and finally met with Peter, three times Jesus asks him, do you love me? Three times Peter has to respond, you know I love you, Lord. And while sitting on that housetop in Joppa, he receives this vision. And the Lord has to show it to him three times. So how significant that three strangers who have just taken a three-day journey are asking about him. And should Peter still have doubts with these strangers calling on him being Gentiles? After that great, great vision of seeing all things clean as God said they would be. The Holy Spirit now speaks to him bluntly to go with him. These men that come to you, I've sent them. You go with them. Go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Remember, he's doubting. He's perplexed. He's bewildered. He's baffled. He's confused. And the Lord said, go and don't doubt. Go and don't doubt. And while Peter still asks them the reason for coming to him, why have you come for me? You know, they're free to make clear the purpose. Look at verse 22 for just a moment. It says, they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all, uh, among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. And so they gave him an answer. But I want you to notice that what Peter was already learning in all of this. Because in verse 23, it says, Then he, Peter, invited them in and lodged them. Now remember, Peter is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lived outside of the city gates of Joppa, because he was a tanner. He was one who worked with dead carcasses to pull out the skins and then use the skins, you know, of course, for making uh, uh, goods and leather goods and clothes and all of that. But nonetheless, it made him a, a, an unclean place. So that was significant enough that Peter was staying with a tanner outside of the gates of the city. But then Peter invites these men into this man's house. But that was part of the custom of the day because Peter was a guest in the home of Simon and therefore Peter could invite anyone he wanted to into this home. Just the custom of the time. But see what he's learning here. It says he invited them in and lodged them and then the next day Peter went with them. Now understand that no good Orthodox Jew would have ever done that. 
No good Orthodox Jew would have ever asked them to come in and lodge in that particular house. Oh, a, a good Jew might have been cordial to these people, these strangers, these Gentiles, but he would have then asked them to please stay outside. That's what a good Jew would have done. Oh, it's nice that you came for me, but uh, listen, we can't leave tonight, but uh, I can't invite you in. But, you know, you can stay out by the seashore because, you know, that's where Simon the Tanner's house was. This was right there by the Mediterranean and it's really pretty night. You can stay out by the sea, but you can't come in. They might have, they might have said, uh, or a, a good Jew might have said to them where, where they could find a place to stay. You go down the, down the street to the Holiday Inn, I mean the, to an inn down that way. And you'll find a place to stay, but you can't come in. A good Jew wouldn't let a, a, a Gentile into his home. It seems that Peter had gotten the point of the vision, you see. He had finally gotten the point of the vision that God called these men who were seeking him clean. And since God called them clean, he could not call them unclean. And so they came in, and they fellowshiped together. God was, was calling out, you see, both Jews and Gentiles now. That was the point of the vision. The fact of the matter is, there's not everyone is clean. The fact of the matter is, everyone is unclean before God. It is God who makes us all clean who come to Him. Whether Jew or Gentile. It was a lesson that uh, the Apostle Paul had learned as well. And, and, and Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 3 through 7 wrote how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already by which when you read you may understand that my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. Notice, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the Gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of His power. What, what, what Paul is expressing here. He, he is saying, in effect, that's what came to Peter. Because it says, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, but has been revealed by the Spirit to his holy prophets, I'm, I'm sorry, his holy apostles and prophets. Peter being one. And it was being revealed to Peter in this time, in this chapter, in this particular place and event that we're studying about today. But how much Peter grasped at this uh, uh, at the time is, is, is difficult to say what he gra grasped of all of this that was going on uh, but, but it was the start as it were as we see in this very next section of the text and, and look at verse 24 and by the way because this is a lot of narrative and a lot of repetition we're going to just read large sections and then focus on the very important points here but in verse 24 it says in the following day they entered Caesarea and now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and uh, saying, Stand up, I, I myself am also 
a man. Now isn't it interesting that Cornelius would see Peter and having received a lot of, of information and a lot of, of detail from the Lord Himself through the angel and, and then through the stories that had been told of, of, of who Peter had, had followed and who Peter had, had uh, learned from. That from Cornelius' heart, you know, he began to realize how important this man was, how precious he was and in the spiritual sense, how God had told him, call for this man. Well, he, of course, bows before him in, in the culture, in the cultural mindset he knew, and he bows down before Peter, and Peter has to tell him, get up, man, I'm just a man just, just like you. And it's wonderful to see Peter say this and do this, because, you know, back in, in the Vatican, even today, there is in St. Peter's Basilica a statue of Peter. Peter sitting down. He's been there for many, many years. Hundreds of years. Pilgrims have gone by this particular statue of Peter sitting there. Not Peter, but, you know, statue of Peter. And as they go by there, you know that, that uh, everyone wants to touch that statue. They venerate the statue. And so much so that everyone who has gone and touched and kissed the feet of Peter have worn out his toes. You know, if you look at that bronze statue today, you'd realize he didn't have any toes on his right foot. Because people have gone by and touched and kissed those, those toes down through, the, down, down through the ages that uh, they've worn it out. And Peter says, why are you doing that? I'm just a man. I'm just a man. You see how careful we need to be about venerating people, about lifting people up. And as he talked with him, verse 27, he went in and he found many who had come together. And then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or, or go to one of another nation. You know, Peter's not boasting here and he's not, he's not uh, condescending. You know, he's not, he's not trying to talk to them from a, from a position. You know, he, he's just trying to make it real clear to, him, to them what's happening in his life. He says, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. And therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I ask then, for what reason have you sent for me? You know, Peter asked that question again, a second time. Why have you sent for me? So Cornelius says, four days ago I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. Of course, this being a vision of an angel. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms, <coughs> excuse me, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Remember now that that was, that was a memorial before the Lord, you know, the, the, the devotion of, of, of Cornelius of not only praying and trusting in God, but, but also in, 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 in taking care of the needs of others. And God took note of it. So then in verse 32 he says, Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. 
So you see the following day after you know the men had come and he'd lodged them there, Peter set out with Cornelius' men along with some Jewish brethren from Joppa. We'll find out in chapter 11 that there were six other men, six Jewish brethren that went with Peter. Men who would be able to verify what the outcome was going to be there in, in, in Caesarea. And what we see in this passage is that God had prepared both Peter and Cornelius for what was to take place. God had prepared Peter already with a vision. God had prepared Cornelius with a vision. And Cornelius, in turn, begins to prepare his household for what is going to come as Peter makes his way to Caesarea. Cornelius prepared his whole household, and now they were all waiting to hear Peter. There's this anxiousness to hear, to hear a message from Peter himself. And Cornelius wasted no time in that preparation. But it was God who was preparing their hearts and their souls to be receptive to the spiritual message of the gospel. And what we need to understand here is that God is the one who prepares the messenger as well as the audience. God prepares the messenger and the audience. Folks, if we are believers in Jesus Christ and God has given us a a, a burden in our hearts for someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ, you know that you are the messenger. Then you need to be prepared and you need to be ready to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the same time, God is working in the hearts of those that we are going to be speaking to. And all the more when we pray, God, prepare the hearts of anyone that you're calling me to tell. How much greater it is when we're able to know that God is laying down the groundwork because we've been praying, we've been seeking the face of God so that we can be effective in in, in the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus talked about this preparation Himself when in Luke chapter 8 verse 15 in in, in one of the accounts of of the the parable of of the soils and and of the spreading of the seed. In Luke 8 15, Jesus said, but the ones that fell, speaking of the seed that fell on on the good ground, you know, there were other types of grounds where the seed was falling, where, where it wasn't as effective, but on the good ground, it says, are those who having heard the word... Notice, with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. The implication here is that the good ground was the prepared ground. It was ground that was having already been, it had already been prepared for the reception of the seed. That is the work that God does, you see. The Lord prepares both the messenger and the hearts of those who are to hear the message. So after correcting Cornelius for worshiping just a man, Peter proceeded then to set his Gentile audience at rest by skillfully disposing of the age-old barrier between Jew and Gentile. He says to them, God has shown me. God has shown me that I should not call any man uncommon, or I should say common or unclean. You see, what Peter was saying in effect was that tradition's guidance is not good enough. Tradition's guidance is not good enough. You know, many of us grew up in various traditions, religiously or spiritually. But those traditions are not the ones that guide us and lead us because they're just not good enough. 
They might help us to kind of focus on certain issues in our lives spiritually, but they, they aren't the end all, you see. Tradition's guidance is not good enough. Man's guidance is not good enough. To depend on the word of just one man or two men or just a, a certain group of people as if to say they're the only ones that we'll listen to. We don't listen to anything. We don't even read the word of God. We'll just tell, we'll just do whatever this, you know, guy tells us the word of God says. Well, that's, that's man's guidance. That's not God's guidance. Bottom line is that only God's direction matters and he certainly spoke clearly to Peter. God spoke to Peter to go. And you know what's remarkable here is that Peter was still asked the question. And we see him asking it twice here. For what reason have you sent for me? What reason have you sent for me? Had had Peter forgotten his commission? Had Peter forgotten the commission given to him by Jesus in Acts chapter 1 verse 8? When he says you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Had he forgotten that? I don't believe so. You see, Peter had already seen what God had done in Jerusalem. Peter had already seen the effects of what the the Word of God was doing in in, in the region of Judea, and even in Samaria, when, when Philip went to Samaria and preached the gospel. And even Peter himself went to Samaria to see the results of what was taking place. Peter had seen it. Peter had been there. So it was only obvious now that the rest was was yet to happen to the end of the earth. In other words, to all the rest of the Gentiles. This was going to happen. It was going to come. Before Peter Peter even knew it, it was happening. But why? Why does he ask this question? Why have you sent for me? Well, we're going to see later that Peter will be questioned about his actions And that even a a conference will be called in Jerusalem to deal with the place of the Gentiles in the church. This was an important matter historically. And that, not just biblical history, I'm talking about what matters throughout all of history. And how the Word of God and, and, and the name of Jesus Christ has spread throughout all the nations. This is key here. This chapter is key to the gospel reaching us. So you can't blame him for asking. Why'd you send for me? But Cornelius goes on to answer Peter with his experience with the angel and and why Peter had been summoned. And let me say this. He was summoned to tell them how they could be saved. Now, we don't see those words in our text per se, do we? It says, we, we want to hear words from you. But I want you to look ahead. We're going to take a peek at what's coming. And look ahead for a moment when, when Peter recounts to the believers in Jerusalem what took place in Caesarea. So go to chapter 11. It's okay. It's okay to peek. Actually, you should be reading ahead anyway. And in Acts chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, as Peter is recounting to the Jewish uh, believers in Jerusalem what took place in Caesarea, he says, he told us, speaking of of Cornelius and he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him send men to Joppa and call for Simon whose surname is Peter who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved so Peter is now giving us more details of what was really said and what all of this uh, visit was all about 
They wanted to know how to be saved. Cornelius wanted to know how to be saved. He wanted his household saved. And and in other words, these weren't curious Gentiles asking for a lecture on Jewish religion. They weren't... Why would Cornelius ask for another lecture on Jewish religion? He was already one who embraced the Jewish religion. He was already one who had gone to the synagogue. He was already one who was learning what what it meant to be Jewish, even though he couldn't go into the temple and, and offer sacrifices because he was a Gentile. But he was a devout uh, proselyte in a sense. And, and so why would he want another lecture on the Jewish religion? They were lost sinners begging to be told how to be saved. <coughs> That's what he didn't know. That's what he didn't understand. And consider this for a moment. Because all of these objections will come up. Why don't you just leave Cornelius alone? Wasn't he good enough already? Wasn't he a devout person already? Wasn't he already somebody who, who you know, embraced another religion? And, I mean, come on, why, why do you want to change all of that? Well, listen, I want you to consider a statement. And I want you to ask yourself, is there any truth to this statement? Ready? One religion is as good as another. Is there any truth in that statement? No, there isn't. One religion is as good as another? Is it? Really? Now, in the mindset of the world, yeah, let's, let's, you know, all religions are the same. Well, if somebody tells you that worshiping the God who has many names, but is really the same God, or, 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 or we shouldn't really try to change someone else's religion because it's the same God, aren't they contrary to Scripture? Yes, it's contrary to Scripture. To start thinking that if, if somebody tells you, you know, what worshiping the God who has to say, you know, has many names. I mean, let's face it, you know, we, we worship our God, you know, we call him Jehovah or, or Yahweh or whatever, or, or Jesus, you know, is the Son of God, is also God the Son. Well, you know, those are the names. But, but then again, you know, there's those people that worship Allah. And, you know, isn't Allah and God the same? No! No! Don't fall into that trap. It's not the same. Not all religions are the same. There have been religions down through the ages trying to combine every type of religion together. Baha'i faith tries to combine, you know, the nine pillars of entering in through nine gates and, you know, uh, but all of a sudden you come in and it's the same God. No, 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 no. Every one of those nine religions, by the way, contradicts each other. So how can you have contradictions that leads to unity? Weird, isn't it? Please understand this. What does the Word of God say? That's what matters here. John chapter 4, verse 22. When Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well in Samaria, and the Samaritans had their own way of worshiping God, and Jesus says says to her, You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Do you see that? For salvation is of the Jews. Those are the words of Jesus Himself. Salvation is of the Jews. In other words, there is no salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ, who in fact was born a Jew. Jesus Christ who came to the Jewish people. He came unto His own, this says in John chapter 111. He came unto His own. You go through that whole study of, 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 of the Jewish faith and of the line of David and how that line reaches all the way to Jesus Christ. From both Mary and from both Joseph. You know, there's that tie-in with David. And that the one who is going to sit on the throne of David is the Messiah. That's Jesus Christ. 
Salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ. There is no salvation, by the way, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, who in fact was born a Jew. And it tells us in John chapter 1, verse 12, that as many as received Him, because it says He came unto His own, but His own did not receive Him. But, verse 12, as many as received Him, to them gave He the right to become the sons of God, to as many as believe in His name. There's the salvation. To the Jew first. How many times do we hear Paul say that? To the Jew first. And also to the Greek. Or also to the Gentile. So here's the, here's, the, here's, here's the issue with Cornelius. Cornelius had piety. Cornelius was a just man. Cornelius was moral. But he didn't have salvation. And without the message of the gospel, Cornelius and his household had no hope. So understand that the seeking Savior will find the seeking sinner. The seeking Savior will find the seeking sinner. By the way, did you know that the Lord sought, out, sought you out? Bottom line is the Lord seeks us out. <coughs> How many times do we read in the Scriptures? <coughs> we didn't love Him first, He first loved us. We didn't seek Him, He sought us. The seeking Savior will find the seeking sinner, and where there's a searching heart, God responds. That is why in Jeremiah 29, verse 13, it says, And you will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. But it's the preparation that God does. It's the work behind the scenes. It's the stuff that we don't ever see that God is doing. That is why it is vitally necessary to obey God's will and to proclaim the good news and to share the Word of God with others because we never know when our witness for Christ is exactly what somebody had been waiting for and praying for. We never know. So we need to be obedient in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, God prepares the messenger and... He prepares the audience. So here's Cornelius and his whole household and his invited guests. And they're all sitting there waiting for Peter. And Peter shows up and he says, why did you send for me? Well, here's this thing, you know, the angel showed himself to me and then said, you know, go seek you out and bring you over here. So you've got words for us. So notice what it says in verse 34 then. Now that we're caught up here, it says that Peter opened his mouth. Okay, I've got words. And what does Peter share? He says, in truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. The first thing that Peter says has to do with his own heart about how God shows no favoritism just to the Jew as he had so long believed. He grew up believing God only favored his, his own people. He says, in truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. And I'll mention something about that verse in just a moment. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ... He is Lord of all. That's a statement of someone who has come to realize what that great uh, vision of the sheep meant. He is Lord of all. He's not just Lord of the Jewish people. 
He's Lord of all, Jew and Gentile, who come to Him, who fear Him, and whose works of righteousness are accepted. Verse 37, that word you know, He says, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Sound familiar? This is one reason why we're not spending a whole lot of time here, because we've heard this before from Peter as he preached in in the temple a couple of times. Him God raised up on the third day and showed Him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with Him after He arose from the dead. And He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is He who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. This is the Messiah, in other words. To Him all the prophets witness that through His name whoever believes in Him will receive remission of sins. Whoever believes in Him, and there's the Gospel, whoever believes in Him will receive remission of sins. So go back now to Peter's first statement. I mentioned it already. The first statement out of his mouth was the foundation for his understanding that the gospel, <coughs> excuse me, that the gospel should now go forth to the Gentiles. He says, "In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, no favoritism." The gospel is for all. It is for Jew. It is for Gentile who come to Jesus. And of course, that statement goes completely against the prevailing Jewish thought that God certainly did show partiality towards Jews and against Gentiles. This is what Peter grew up with. A Jewish man began every day with a prayer. Did you know this? A Jewish man began every day with a prayer, thanking God that he was not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. Women, are, are, are you awake? Did you hear that? Ah. That was their prayer. With all due respect to our ladies here. A man would thank God that he was not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. There was even an oath. Basic to the Jewish religion that promised one would never help a Gentile under any circumstances. Such as even giving directions if they were to be asked. Wouldn't give any help to a Gentile. By the way, Gentiles could dish it out as well. Dish, uh, Gentiles despise the Jews because, you know, they just have these <coughs> issues between them. They would oftentimes say, you know, the Gentiles would oftentimes say that the Jews didn't eat pork. Uh, that since the Jews didn't eat pork, that uh, they must worship pigs. That was one of the things that was said. You guys, don't wor- you guys don't eat uh, pork, therefore you must be worshipping pigs. Well, that was just anger. You know, it was just throwing all, of these, all this dirt at each other. So I want you to know that it's interesting that Christianity was the first religion or belief system, as it were. But Christianity was the first re- belief system to disregard racial, cultural, and national limitations. 
Christianity was the first religion to disregard racial, cultural, and national limitations. The true heart of Jesus Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free. It isn't about color. It's all about the heart. Going back to verse 35, it doesn't teach that we're saved by works, by the way. It teaches us that this is a description of the Christian life. The Christian life is one that fears God and works righteousness. It, it is one that does this from salvation, not toward salvation. It is from salvation. When we are saved, we fear God. We are to fear the Lord. We are to do those works of righteousness that will honor and bless God. But not for salvation. It is from our salvation. It is, a, it is to reverence Him. It is to respect Him. It is to trust Him. And the real thought comes from the Old Testament in Micah chapter 6 verse 8 that says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly? To love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And then Peter went on to proclaim in summary the whole gospel. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by the way, also the deity of Christ. When he says he is Lord of all, it is not just that he is saying he's Lord of all, uh, and not just the Lord of Israel, he's Lord of all. The key word is Lord. You never called anyone Lord except God. And so he is proclaiming Christ's deity in that statement as well. And as he had in his previous sermons, Peter laid the blame. And, and, and please understand why. Peter laid the blame for the crucifixion of Jesus on the Jewish leaders. There in verse 39. Now it's interesting that the Apostle Paul would later pick up this same emphasis. Let me try to explain in just a moment. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, it says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. In other words, these Gentiles were imitators of the churches in Judea, those who were made up of mostly Jews. They became imitators of the churches of God. For you also suffered, he says, the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. <coughs> you see... Peter and Paul are making a statement. When the Jewish leaders took Jesus to Rome, they said, we're washing our hands of this. You, crucify. But don't forget that it was Pilate, the Roman governor, who eventually washed his hands and said, no, have it your way. The fact of the matter is we all Crucify Jesus. 
both Jew and Gentile. But it was important for the Jewish people to understand that we can't wash our hands of the responsibility. It would have been easy to say the Romans killed him because it was a Roman form of execution. But he says it was the Jewish leaders. <coughs> with that in mind, the sermon concluded. With the understanding of the, <coughs> the broad scope of, of God's promise of salvation, when he says at the very end of that phrase, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Whoever, in other words, whoever, both black and white, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, whoever believes in Him will receive remission or forgiveness of sins. Notice what happens to those who are hearing the Word of God at that moment and then laying hold of that word, whoever, and then applying it to themselves. Notice here in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the Word. They're listening to the Gospel and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. In other words, those six friends of Peter who went with them, they were astonished. that they, they, they see now the Holy Spirit come upon these Gentiles because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. We thought that was just for us. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. You see how they were there to verify what had happened in Caesarea that day? Peter could have gone alone, but he said, I need, I need you to witness something. I need you to witness what God is doing with the Gentiles. Because Peter then answers here in verse 47, Can anyone forbid water then? that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. In other words, we are going to follow that pattern of Pentecost here. This is as much the Pentecost experience for these Gentiles as it was for us as the Jews who received the message of the Gospel when we did. And He commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord and then they asked Him to stay a few days and more than likely, all of that was taking place. <coughs> Let's go get baptized. <coughs> Peter, keep teaching us. Peter, keep, keep building us up in the Word of God. Stay with us a few days. It seemed like Peter was just getting warmed up, you know. <laughs> getting warmed up in his message when his congregation believed and the Holy Spirit interrupted the meeting. By the way, let's let the Holy Spirit interrupt me. He's not us. Let's let the Holy Spirit do the interrupting. The Spirit was giving the Jewish companions of Peter a witness and a testimony that these Gentiles were truly born again. That was the testimony. Why does Peter start his sermon by saying, I perceive that there is no partiality here with God? Interesting. Remember that they hadn't seen the vision with Peter, these Jewish friends, to come to the understanding that the Gentiles were now on equal footing with the Jews. They hadn't seen what Peter had seen. So Peter took them along to see the results of what God was going to do. But this doesn't suggest that every new believer in Jesus Christ gives evidence of salvation 
by speaking in tongues, as some believe. Even though every true believer will certainly use his or her tongue to glorify God, and we should, once we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So when they spoke in tongues, it was to magnify God. It wasn't to teach man. It was to magnify God. The, the audience was God. You see, God was the audience there, not, not man. Which is consistent with the principle that is found in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, that says, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. So it's consistent then with the teaching of the, of the Scriptures. But believers among the Jews, among Samaritans and Gentiles, now have all received the Spirit of God and are united in the body of Christ. All of them. You go back to Acts chapter 2. You go back to Acts chapter 4. You go back to Acts chapter 8. And the ministry of, of Philip and the Samaritans. And you're here in chapter 10 and you see what's happening with the Gentiles now. They've received the Spirit of God and they are united in the body of Christ. And the principle that Paul gives us in Galatians chapter 3 is taking place here. Verse 26 of Galatians 3, Paul says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, Paul says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. That's what happened in Caesarea. They all drank of the same Spirit. The same Spirit that was given at Pentecost a few years earlier. The same Spirit that came upon the Samaritans who believed. The same Spirit was given to the Gentiles. And by the way, these particular Gentiles were not saved by being baptized. I want to make that clear too. They were baptized because they gave evidence of being saved. Sinners have always been saved by faith. This principle never changes. Sinners will always be saved by faith. Paul says in, in, in I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so what an experience for Peter to receive that vision in a, you know, as he's waiting for lunch <laughs> and seeing all these animals. And the Lord says, rise, Peter, kill, eat. It's all clean. Out of heaven. And he says, not so, Lord. 
The Lord has to show it to him three times. But I have called clean. You shall not call common. All have sinned, Peter, and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. But those who come to me, whether Jew or Gentile, I will in no wise cast out. I will make clean. What a lesson for Peter. It's interesting. I want to close with this thought today. It's interesting that another Jew went to Joppa as a starting point for a trip to carry a message from God to Gentiles. Another Jew. Although this particular Jew's trip was a bit more roundabout than Peter's. You see, Peter was led there by God to Joppa, given that vision, given that great, great vision of that sheet. But the other Jew, he actually went to Joppa to run away from God. His name was Jonah. I think it's really interesting, the comparisons of these two Jews. Because Jonah the prophet actually went to Joppa to flee the Lord and to get on a ship bound to Tarshish. Because the Lord had said to him, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach to them repentance. And he struggled because those were Gentiles. They were wicked people and they didn't want to have anything to do with them. And while both Jonah and Peter were perplexed about their calling to Gentiles, Jonah tried to run from his call while Peter obeyed the Lord. Beyond his objection, not so, Lord. Peter obeyed. Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. Peter, who had already gone through three nights of agony because of his denying his Lord three times, saw this vision of the great sheet out of heaven three times as well. <clears throat> How similar their lives were. A key idea in Jonah, when you read the four chapters of Jonah, is God preparing a lot of things to accomplish His will, not only for Nineveh, but also for Jonah. All the things that God did to prepare Jonah... Look at this story here with Peter and Cornelius. All the things that God did in preparing the way for the gospel to reach the Gentiles. God is a God of preparation. How interesting. God prepared the way. For Jonah, he prepared a lot of things. Prepared the fish, by the way. Then he prepared, you know, later on when Jonah was, you know, he goes in and he, you know, half-heartedly half goes in and says, repent, you know, and the whole nation repents and he says he's upset with God. The Gentiles are, are saved by God. Delivered. So he goes up and God prepared a plant to cover Jonah. And the plant dries out. Then he prepares a worm. Prepares all kinds of things for Jonah. I think I'd rather be Peter. 
Because even though I can't deal with those perplexities sometimes, I know one thing. When God says don't doubt, that's best not to doubt. God has everything under control. That's how we need to live our lives. The gospel came to the Gentiles and eventually to us. And now we're here in love with Jesus, I hope, in love with His Word, and in love with those who need Jesus and our desire to let them know that Jesus came to save sinners. Are you ready to share that word? Are you ready to share the gospel? Are you ready to pray for people? Are you ready to get up every day and to say, Lord, I don't know who I might run into today, but you know what? If Lord, if there's anybody out there, prepare their hearts so that if, the word, if your word goes forth, they're ready for it. They're ready for it. But prepare me first. Prepare the messenger. Prepare the audience. Let's go out. Let's go, let's go see God do great things with the gospel. Amen? Let's pray.